0: So, Ken, uh, just wrapped up, overall seemed like uh, it was a great week, and I wanted to uh, congratulate all of the Lions and Wark Award winners. Seems like it was a ton of fun. Congrats to everybody. Many of the campaigns have actually already been on the show, and I hope that we'll welcome more of the winners uh, in the coming uh, few weeks. But I wanted to talk about the others and it's the ones that didn't win. And and maybe you didn't enter, or maybe you lost out on being shortlisted or winning by a single judging point, or maybe a judge missed a critical point in your strategy or didn't read it closely enough. Uh, Judging's brutal. It's intense. So this can happen. So um, I wanted to offer the chance to showcase you here. I can't feature every great case, but I can get many of you the exposure you deserve. And that's what really what this show is all about. That's what it was founded upon. It's for those who love to continuously learn and those generous enough to share. So please do send me your entry paper or a brief summary. I'd love to read it, and it could become an episode on our show. Send it to hello at onstrategyshowcase.com. I've always been frustrated by the fact that great work doesn't get the exposure it deserves there is so much that all of us can learn from what uh, some of us are doing so please do reach out. Um, it would be great to read some of these papers. That said, welcome to On Strategy Showcase. I'm Fergus O'Carroll in Chicago. You can download our 2023 sponsor kit on our homepage. This is episode number four of our Outside In Thinking series, sponsored by the Planning Department. Here's a clip from today's show.
1: We can hope there's going to be some Restructuring of the way our society works to make it more fair and equitable, and we can push for that. But where we are right now, we have to develop some skills to deal with these biases now. And so people might have worked their way up from the mail room. That isn't going to happen these days um, in any significant numbers. So, how do we codify the things that those people that work their way up from the mail room in our businesses so that everyone, no matter what their background, and apply the same perspectives
0: we wrap the series with ian murray and andrew tenzer both have produced some of the most provocative thought leadership pieces in the last few years they question whether exposure to broader audiences or more diversity in our ranks is good enough to expand our worldview and solve the outside in dilemma they suggest that the bubble isn't only the city we live in or the audiences we lack real world exposure to but the one that surrounds us as individuals we need to examine our own ability to be objective in the ways we work and the assumptions we make regardless of what or whom we're exposed to in other words the goal is objective expertise Once again, I'm joined by Steve McCarran of the planning department, the sponsor of this series. Welcome back, Steve. Thank you, Fergus. It's great to be back. So in this final episode in the series, we have a wide-ranging conversation that includes the danger of losing expertise in our industry. Um, The idea is that we're sort of, all of us have sort of access to um, web-based tools that help us all do research. And anybody has access to it. We um, also have strategy frameworks that are proliferating everywhere and everyone has access to them. And also uh, on the client-vendor side, there are very long-term relationships that hinge on making clients happy. And, um, you know, when you have that sort of a situation, how do we ensure that what we're getting is indeed objective? It's the idea that with access available to everyone do we have to sort of take a second look at the importance of expertise? And uh, what happens when we sort of lose the value of expertise?
2: We've all been conditioned from a very early age to really respect anything which is described as research. We accept assertions that are backed by so-called research as truth, and we see them as being more valuable than other sorts of assertions. So the danger is you do these studies or or conduct these methodologies in a a lazy um, way and they become truth and they can become counterproductive. In a world where clients are always looking at ways to save costs and stretch budget, if they can access a tool, um, the temptation is to do it themselves. Um, And a a great example of that is the likes of SurveyMonkey, uh, Google Forms, where I've been in many situations where a client has given me The quantitative research conducted amongst their customers or amongst their staff base and they present it as the truth you know good research and good strategy is a service because it needs to be crafted it needs to be designed with expertise it then needs to be executed in the right way and then it needs the right interpretation on top of that as well
0: i think as a client or as uh, somebody on the agency side realizing that Uh, You need to have more expert or experienced eyes on the very earliest stages of research and then the very earliest stages of drawing assumptions. Can feel like it's complicated, or it can feel like it's an extra step, or it can feel like it's too expensive. Does this have to be the case?
2: It doesn't have to be a significant monetary investment. It's about building in the Time and the appropriate stages to make sure that we don't rush into these things in order to hit an artificial deadline but we take the time to think it through craft it properly um, and design something which is going to deliver something transformative
0: thanks steve we appreciate you guys being a sponsor of this series thank you fergus we'll be right back with ian murray and andrew Tenzer of burst your bubble This series is sponsored by the Planning Department, a new breed of strategy agency that lets you access a world-class planning department as and when you need it. Think of it as having a planning department without the year-round overhead. Based in the UK, they're a group of researchers and strategists spread across the globe with diverse proven experience across all major categories. As outside voices, they bring fresh, objective perspective to brand and business problems. So, if you're interested in having world class brand and communication strategists on your business, be sure to connect with them because the best ideas happen when you bring the outside in. Learn more at theplanningdepartment.co.uk. That's theplanningdepartment.co.uk. Now, back to the show. Tell us about Burst Your Bubble and the problem that it's designed to solve.
1: Actually, it's. Uh... the the, the latest stage on a journey that Andrew and I have been on for certainly the last six or seven years directly, uh, Andrew and I have collaborated uh, on a a series of white papers uh, in the industry when he was uh, at REACH and I I was uh, his research partner, which have been looking at this idea that um, uh, if we take a lot of the uh, behavioural science and cross-cultural psychology and all of the things that we as an industry are interested in using as tools to understand people out there in the world. Our hypothesis was a few years ago that um, people working in marketing are a community with identities too and what if we have flipped all of this around and applied it to look back in the industry at, as you say who we are, what are the identities and the values and the beliefs that we bring to the work and how that influences the work that we do. So Burst your bubble is the the kind of the, the the culmination of six or seven years worth of research that effectively has shown using a wide range of different frameworks, as I say, from behavioural social science, that marketing is effectively a community of people. It's a very homogenous and elitist community of people with some very deep cultural biases and. Invariably, what we tend to do is uh, we are projecting those biases onto the audiences that we're supposed to engage and serve, rather than frankly uh, being be more objective about it. So, burst your bubbles really about trying to use some of that science that we've been working with for the last uh, few years, and, and effectively offer our playbook and how we've done these white papers and research mm-hmm. to the industry to um, uh, develop more diverse thinking about what's out there in the world. The hypothesis being that if we contextualise and work more on the messy reality of the world, we will do better and more effective work, essentially.
3: As Ian mentioned, we we have been on quite a long journey, and it feels like, like Burst Your Bubble is, is kind of the, the culmination of everything we've done. Um, so Burst Your Bubble is a, a thought leadership uh, and training consultancy, um, obviously thought leadership is is what we've been we've been doing for a long time and um, our work has been highly acclaimed within the industry and you know what what was great about the stuff we've done is it it kind of transcends kind of borders um so whilst primarily uh, a lot of our work is focused on the UK um it's been picked up uh everywhere and so there's a lot of people who contact us from the US from Australia saying although this is you know about uk marketing you know it feels very much relevant to to our markets as well um and really what we're what we're looking to do is take some of the uh the work we've done around um i guess perspective taking and really bring that to the fore and help people uh come to terms with, with some of the biases they have but also um recognize the fact that we're not asking people to change their values and beliefs uh, or anything like that or change who they are. We're just asking them to consider uh, alternative uh, perspectives to give them a, a, a broader um, a broader outlook on the things they do and the work they do and, and, and the marketing and advertising that they create. So
0: let's talk more about that. So build alternative perspectives uh, into your sort of decision-making and how you work. What do you specifically mean by that?
1: So the the work that we've done uh, shows that um, if you take uh, widely recognized frameworks uh, that would be, uh, for example, the World Values Survey, uh, you know, is a, a framework that's used, as it suggests, all the way around the world to understand people's basic beliefs. If you take a framework like that and uh, look at, as we did, uh, how the marketing industry's uh, uh, values stack up versus the mainstream audiences that are looking to engage, you find that the marketing industry skews very much towards what we would describe as a kind of hyper-individualised worldview. So it's very much focused on and over-indexes substantially on uh, values like, Power and achievement, material success, hedonism, um, a, a, an individualistic worldview in the sense that um, you see the world as something that is a you know a, a straight line that's predictable and knowable. Whereas it turns out out there in the in the world, the mainstream as we have, we've referred to the general public in most of the research that we've done, um, they have what might be called a more. Uh, A circular view of the world that's much more focused on um, interdependence of people, uh, community, uh, you know, uh, on values like universalism and benevolence. And so the first thing is, and this isn't necessarily the thing that's a big surprise to anyone, the marketing industry isn't de- demographically diverse, even though there's a lot of emphasis now going on to improving that, at the moment it ha- hasn't been historically a diverse industry. So it's not surprising that they have different values and beliefs. But here's the thing, in the business that we are in, about understanding the world and designing conditions and strategies that engage people and in influence behaviour, it turns out when we ask the industry, uh what other people are like, the thing that is the stock and trade of what we do for a living, it turns out what we do in terms of a values framework is we simply project our values and beliefs onto that mainstream audience. And we would argue that you see that um, manifest in lots of the kind of communication and the things that the industry focuses on in terms of its agenda, whether it's commercially or frankly, its social agenda as well. So that in essence, is the the core thread that runs through all of the work that we've done. And so when we talk about perspective taking, we're talking about a range of established skills and practices that are out there in behavioral science that we can apply to develop more knowledge and awareness of these biases and these cultural perspectives that we are projecting onto uh, the world out there, basically.
0: So that, in essence, suggests that we need to apply the behavioral sciences techniques to the. Uh, we need to turn it around and and implement it against ourselves in order to expose the gaps that exist between mainstream and the industry, or to reconcile them. Or, or how do you think about it?
1: Yeah, I mean, th- th- you've almost you've almost uh, articulated a phra- phrase that uh, Fergus I used a long time ago, uh, which is turning the behavioral lens on ourselves. Yeah, yeah. So- so it's it's an as you'll know you know from from all the people you speak to in the industry, behavioural science is something that a lot of people in the industry are now immersed in. And uh, but it tends to be something that, as I say, we tend to think about as something a bag of tricks, frankly, that we use on other people. And what we are saying is, why don't we take all of that incredibly diverse, rich body of you know scientific endeavour and evidence that's there, and Turn it around and, and and use it to hone our skills and make us more effective at what we are we we are trying to achieve. Basically, I think that one of the the
3: important takeouts from all the work we've done is the fact that you know the first thing in recognizing there is potential, you know, that there is a problem is actually understanding the differences between you and the people that you're trying to target. I think that's a really important first step. To understanding, actually, I'm not my audience, and therefore, I need to think of think of ways and approaches to understand them uh, better. And I think that's what's so valuable, valuable about the work we've done, because it, it's kind of that first step to improving one's perspective taking is is to recognize is the, recognize the differences.
1: Yeah, and I think just hearing you say that, Andrew, it reminds me of the great way that Mark Ritson talks about it he talks about a market orientation problem and that's what we are saying that perspective taking the science of perspective taking the stuff that we want to kind of bring to the, the table uh, it, in essence helps with that ultimate objective of marketing which is to achieve market orientation and the recognition is Andrew says you're not the customer but also orientate yourself correctly towards that customer
3: one of our later studies the aspiration window obviously Ian's talked about values and we also looked at things like moral foundations but actually when you get to the more uh actionable side of uh you know of projecting your understanding of people's aspirations like wanting to keep up with the latest fashions and, and, and things like that even in that type of scenario there is a clear market orientation problem because you know people working in marketing and advertising as our research found just aren't very good at uh, assessing how much people want to keep up with the latest fashions or want to be a force for good all of those types of things which are i guess more at the practical end of, of, of marketing and advertising
0: so the suggestion is that um that how we behave and think within the industry is very different than mainstream behaviors and thinking but what's what's critical is whether we're able to bridge that gap today in the work that we're producing is it your uh is it your suggestion that the outputs are missing the mark far more frequently than they
3: should obviously this is something that there's been a th- Read through our work, and Ian and I have, have talked about about it a lot, um, and it's also tied in with a lot of other work out there, like Orlando Woods' work around lemon uh, and things like that, which yes. have very, you know, similar parallels to. The work that we've done um and you know uh, orlando we know and he's he's used our research in in his books that it's for us it's it's kind of clear that there are elements of advertising and marketing which is very what we would call straight line thinking analytical thinking both in creative execution, but also um, just ideation uh, as well. And I think, I mean, Ian would would speak to this as well. That yeah, I mean, we, our feeling is that the way in which people think, see, experience, and interpret the world, i.e., people in the marketing and industry, has a direct impact on on the work that we produce.
1: I think one of the areas that we we, we look at specifically is around. Um, But for various, very good reasons, uh, the marketing industry has, over recent years, become much more socially aware and become much more focused on a range of social causes. And one of the areas Andrew and I have used to kind of illustrate where we think this cultural disconnect happens is in the, you know, frankly, the kind of push towards brand or, or social purpose. And our Our perspective on it has been, uh, you know, it's quite a risky area to get into, but, you know, our perspective on it is is that we completely understand all the reasons why young people, and we've got an industry that is very, very skewed towards a younger demographic, young people are worried about the future from an ecological point of view and and an economic point of view as well. So it makes total sense that they say, look, we want to understand culture and be culturally relevant, And they start to engage in conversations and narratives around social causes and where marketing and brands might fit in. But this is one of the areas where if you are defaulting back to actually quite a kind of particular uh, set of values and beliefs, uh, and and that is your reference point for what should be a, a universal problem like the environment, what you end up with, we would argue, is is work that uh, either creatively or strategically is too narrow in it's focus and on the behavioural kind of levers that it's trying to use to generate the change that you want. So you end up in a place where you are effectively creating uh, a story about a universal problem like the environment, for example, but you're only doing it for people like us, in the uh in the uh, uh the marketing industry. And our argument then is, is when we've been very critical of social purpose, one of the arguments that we're making is it's not that we don't think it's appropriate for marketing to be doing this, it's that it's frankly not good enough because it's too narrowly framed and it's missing the mark. And I think that's one of the ways that you you end up almost uh when people talk about um purpose washing or green washing, for example, there may be a whole uh, range of things that might be at the cynical end of it, where it's just bandwagon jumping or, you know, uh, deflecting. But I think a lot of what happens is very well-intentioned and genuine attempts to engage in a massive issue that just don't land because we aren't, as we, we are arguing, start with, the correct perspective and fully interrogating, you know, uh, the different worldviews that go into something like, you know, an environment message or a purpose message.
0: So, you know, one of the other things, and you write about this in in your work, um, and an example that you use is uh, P&G's Chief Brand Officer, Mark uh, Pritchard. In 2019, uh, he comes out with um, a very strong point of view on how his brands and his portfolio need to be more uh, socially uh, active. They need to have a, a, a purpose-driven, uh, a very strongly purpose-driven uh, positioning for each of their brands. And um, and he, he makes some factual statements that I think a lot of people in the industry were very skeptical of. But if you were to look at research study after research study, you would become convinced that it was f- indeed true. Uh, When fundamentally, I I think you guys suggest, and I agree, that we're not interrogating methodologies, question design, research design enough to understand uh, that the outcomes are greatly influenced by how we ask questions and how we field uh, research. Can we talk a little bit about what Pritchard said, and then let's talk about the idea of um, what you you guys describe as... Uh, socially desirable responses
3: you hear kind of these big industry heavyweights telling telling us that you know half of people are making choices based on brands you know on shared values and half of people from gen z all the way to boomers really expect brands to, to take a stand on societal issues and i think where i was coming from and particularly in relation to research is the fact that a lot of research um, and it goes back again to the culture of the marketing and the biases that we have in the a lot of research has been designed uh is misleading and 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 biased and quite narrow in its view and is designed to elicit a certain response and the way in which those studies are designed is very much driven um using social desirability the way in which we ask questions to push a particular agenda um, I think if you start out with uh, with something that you want to prove is right rather than testing if the hypothesis uh, is either false or true um, then you end up with these studies where um, you know you're asking people you know do you agree that you're more likely to buy a brand who does good for society? That is a classic socially desirable statement. Who's not going to agree with that? With that response, just like if you, you know, one of the things I used to do when I went into agencies was ask people how many to put their hand up if they uh, if they're more likely to buy a brand that that does good for the environment, and everyone puts their hand up, and then you ask people to put their hand up if they bought something from Amazon in the last two weeks, and everyone puts their hand up, and this is the point that there is a big difference between. Uh, what people say and what people do however you can mitigate a lot of that difference through good research design and sadly a lot of the studies not just in this area but in lots of other marketing uh, and advertising areas just leave a lot to be desired
1: I was going to say that I think this, this is a a problem that's almost as old as uh, you know as old as the industry I mean, I think my favorite quote on it's the famous David Ogilvy one, you know, about, you know, we use research as a drunkard uses a lamppost for our support rather than illumination, you know? Yeah, yeah. And, 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 you know, and that, you know, David Ogilvy recognized that, you know, back then. And uh, one of the things I think is a little bit different now is, is I think, and this is a key thing we we're talking about. So there's a methodological Point here, and a craft, a research craft point, and Andrews kind of talked about that. And but here's the thing: social desirability bias is a thing you should know about when you do research and you you create attitude statements. Where I think the area we are talking about is where that is it a lack of craft skills, or just being a little bit you know loose with the you know with 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 the craft. Uh, Or is this where the cultural biases and the motivated cognition of a community that believes certain things blends with the methodology? And so, what you actually have is a research industry that actually thinks its job is to offer support rather than illumination. Yeah. Because again, the research industry is effectively part of the same homogenous community as. The agency and brand marketers that it's serving. And so there's a motivated cognition thinking on here that we want to put research out that signals to our community that we are in the right place on issues. And that overrides the need for dealing with the messy reality of the diverse and contradictory world that's actually out there. So we're imposing order on it that fits our Uh, uh, our belief system, frankly.
3: What usually happens in this instance is someone like Mark Pritchard, you know, Pritchard makes a statement like that, and then the research industry and everyone else rallies around to reinforce the, you know, the big industry person who's made that statement rather than take a step back and say, well, actually, is is that true? I think the key point that we want to emphasise is that actually we all have a role to play in, in kind of stopping the normalisation of bad research, because ultimately our industry, as Ian mentioned at the beginning, is all about understanding people and culture. And research not only plays a huge role in driving this understanding, it's obviously used for commercial advantage.
1: One of the things we talk about and contextualise our- Uh, research training in is the the trend towards the the democratization of data, right? So the idea that through technology, we have been enabled to do a lot more research or access data at our fingertips, you know, without intermediaries like uh, research experts, okay? So as Andrew says, one of the things we're doing is saying if you, and we we don't think as many people at the principal level would deny that the more open your perspective is and the more diverse your worldview is, that's a good set of inputs to feed into strategy and decision-making. But if you are in this world where tech is democratising it and you're expected to be kind of at your fingertips engaging with this more, how do you, without turning people, as, as Andrew's mentioned, into the detail of the methodology and stuff that just it's not their jobs, how do you build confidence to have a critical perspective on research and have the confidence at the C-suite and the board level to go, I'm not just going to take this stuff because I'm sure someone's done it properly, but actually engage and say, is do I believe this and give give people the, the, the critical frameworks to interrogate it and see if it's uh see if it's correct. It's always
0: been interesting to me as we, as we've talked about in this series and on this show, it's come up a number of times in conversation, which is the idea that, um, each of us in our own separate departments, there's an awful lot of assumptions that are made about us and our abilities. For example, if you're in the creative department, um, and there's an assumption that you understand business and you understand the way decisions are made. Among consumers, because you're developing an idea and you're trying to make something that's actually you know really going to work and function. But that is not necessarily the case. I mean, when you move to the planning department, there's an assumption made that we understand and we and we're good at understanding the intentions of others, and that we're we're and most importantly, that we're good at interpreting what is being said because too many times we, come back and we state what was literally said rather than being able to look at it through an empathy filter, right? And it's we, so we can't assume just because a planner or a marketer can talk the talk that they actually have the ability to truly understand what's being said. That is an expertise as in the same way that writing a great questionnaire is an expertise we seem I worry that we're losing expertise. We're moving past expertise too too much and the work is suffering as a result of that. Does that make does that resonate with you guys at all?
1: It, it resonates a lot, Fergus. Uh, the, one of the things we talk about is the contrast between uh a professional identity, because we're talking about a community of people, and we have identities that are bound up with our professional disciplines and then the things we are supposed to be good at because of those versus a a technical competence and I think there is a gap that's growing there but just because you find yourself in a certain role in an organisation it is assumed and projected onto you that you have a certain range of qualities and you you mentioned the word empathy there and that's been a very very key word in the journey that Andrew and I have been on you know obviously one of the studies is The one that probably took off the most uh, was called the empathy delusion, and that was exactly the point we were making there. We were saying the industry, as a its identity, yes, it feels it, and it's like its core is that if you work in marketing, and particularly if you work in planning or research, probably even more that well, I'm doing this. I must be good at empathy. That must be what it's about. It's a good example of what we're talking about. What Andrew and I decided to do is like, let's go and test this and see if this is true. The behavioural science and the psychology has plenty of incredibly robustly tested and established ways of measuring empathy. Let's see if marketers really are naturally empathetic uh, or not. And guess what? As a cohort, uh, they are no... In fact, that's just slightly worse at it than the mainstream audiences they're due, they're due to uh, that they're supposed to be engaging. So, here's the thing we've got a profession that that's the core of what it's doing. No one would deny that, that, that's what we should be about understanding other people. But with all the training and the kind of the you know, all the techniques and all the information that flows through the businesses that we're in, it hasn't moved the dial beyond the average for the whole population on empathy. And then the other point is, and this is one of the things that gets lost a little bit in the empathy delusion. We measured two different types of empathy in the generic sense. One was effective empathy, you know, the emotional side of it. Um, you know that you know the basically the response is I am trying to feel what you feel, or I want you to feel what I'm feeling. But the other one that was in there is the cognitive side of it, which is called perspective-taking, and that's actually what Burst Bubble is built around. And marketing isn't any good at either of them, but our point is is that the one that actually helps us engage with the diverse messiness of the world isn't the emotional one. It's the cognitive one. It's perspective-taking.
0: So what what did you mean by uh, perspective empathy? Can you explain that?
1: Yeah. So what it is is it's actually saying you know uh, you're not trying to put yourself in the other person's emotional situation and, and identify with their emotion. You're understanding uh, the, the the situation and context, and then from a removed and kind of more rational and cognitive position. So basically, the definition is is that of you know of perspective taking is you can perceive and understand concepts from alternative points of view. You don't need to feel them because as soon as you start feeling it, you end up defaulting to your own values and your own perspective because that's what empathy is.
0: So, as an industry, are we are we just deciding to drive down the middle and ignore both sides, or do or do you see it? Do you frequently see in the creative work that that bias is reflected?
1: Um, I Andrew and I were talking about this the other day in terms of. Um, examples of things we might feature in the training and uh, to, to try and illustrate this exact point, Fergus, about how deep this is. And so my at the moment, uh, I'll give you a little uh, anecdote about something that is from my personal experience of being a sports viewer and the ads that I see when I'm watching the golf or the football on, on, on TV at the weekend. Um, So there's this political dimension we're talking about but there's actually a much more implicit thing going on in terms of the kind of world view that is the kind of implicit world view of the marketing industry. It comes back to the thing we talked about at the beginning of the conversation, and it's been a thread through: is this idea of hyper individualism? That everything is the world as marketing sees it is incredibly individualized and not really looking at it as a collective whole. And so, nearly every product that I see on the ads, and, and, and uh, you know. Uh, predominantly in sport that I watch, that's the, the live be that I see. Um, it, everything is articulated in some way through an individualistic uh, lens. So, for example, there's an ad on in the UK right now for Unilever. I think it's for shower gel or deodorant, one or the others. And um, the, the young guy is a teacher and he's also a, a rugby coach. And the voiceover—it's the usual thing to expect. You see him coaching his rugby team, and he's in the shower, you know, with his with his body wash. And the voiceover says, "You you have to look after yourself before you look after anybody else." That is self-care, okay? And so, what we would argue is that's an incredibly individualistic framing of what is a very big issue in the world, which is uh, well-being and health. You know, you have to look after number one before anybody else it's, it's essentially uh point one in the neoliberal handbook yeah and what we're arguing is is that if we are more aware of the different cultural codes and beliefs implicit and explicit that are out there and and critically evaluate the ones that we are uh, uh you know building into our work, we may or may not decide that that's compatible with what we want to present as a worldview. You know, and is it the one that actually even is the most effective way of selling, selling the deodorant or the the shower gel? Because there's a lot of, um, uh, Bob Hoffman talks about this a lot, in the, uh, you know, ad contrarian, he's a big fan of um, Kevin Simler's work all about common knowledge, you know, the idea that actually how a brand works is not what you believe about the brand, but what you think you know other people, believe about it. So this idea of having a holistic view of how advertising works, and this is Orlando Wood's point as well And Lemon, we're missing this because we are, young people in our industry are absorbing a kind of dominant cultural paradigm and unconsciously projecting it out there into their work. And what if they did it a different way and there, were a wave, there was a, a way, there was a different way of framing the exact same ad, would it be more effective?
0: How do we move forward with this? Is this something that we can solve in recruiting? Is this about diversity of 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 human experience and life experience of race and, and ethnicity of class? Um,
3: how do we how do we course correct for this as an industry? We've been asked this question a lot throughout um, throughout the times we've we've down the years as we've we've published our work. Um, I think the, the key point is that yes, of course, we need to recruit more diversely, um, but that you know that includes lots of different types of diversity. Um, but one of the things we argue is that the culture of marketing uh, is such that even though you might recruit diversely into the industry, um, you still got get swallowed up by the prevailing culture that exists so with any of these questions it's it's kind of like it's it's a bit of both in the sense that yes we need to recruit and be more representative but we fundamentally need to address the culture of marketing which is both a recruitment but just an ideas and way of doing things um, and, and way of thinking.
1: I think it's a good area uh, Fergus where and of thought this is us practicing what we preach one of the things about perspective taking is Changing your mind, and although we we landed in our conclusions and the empty delusion and the aspiration window, certainly making a big case for, for greater diversity in the industry and uh, social mobility, uh, and that will, you know, as Andrew said, that will make an impact. Just literally, if you can't de bias your own thinking incorporate as many biases as possible into your organisation is one of the arguments for diversity uh, in one sense. But the way we've changed our mind a little bit is, as Andrew says, we realised that, and there's a great book uh, that we've referenced in some of our work by a a sociologist at the London School of Economics called Sam Friedman called The Class Ceiling, and just looking at it through the class lens, I think it applies to a lot of other... um, Uh, uh, identities as well, is that what happens, he's done case studies in a wide range of different sectors, finance, uh, TV industry in the UK, etc. And the experience of diverse people coming into elite industries is the incredible pressure to assimilate to the dominant culture. And then what happens is they either are assimilated and they push out the same worldview as everyone else, or frankly, they drop back out of the industry because they feel culturally marginalised by it. So why we are talking so much in virtual public perspective-taking is the science of perspective-taking argues two really key things. It is a skill that can be managed and developed. And so we are saying fewer sure, diversity is a social justice imperative. We should have a more diverse industry. But that won't in itself do the job. We need to be aware of how we develop the capacity to interrogate a belief for and engage with diverse perspectives. So we are now having talked more probably at the end of those two white papers about the demic- demographic diversity point. We've now come to the conclusion, and what Burst Your Bubble is about is saying, can we add this other piece into the equation because the diversity alone... Especially if, frankly, the diversity is narrowly framed, uh, won't do the job on its own. And so, what burst of bubble is is complementary to uh, the diversity push in the industry? Is how we see it.
0: I remember uh, during our Steve Lacey episode, earlier episode in this series, he talked about um, he talked about how the um, or how he felt that the creative work that was done a number of decades ago. Was much stronger at connecting with the mainstream than work that is done today, and um, and I, I kind of pushed back on him a little bit, and I was asking, well, but back then there wasn't a diversity of of um, of background as much in that situation. It was like white guys talking to white guys, and and there wasn't really an understanding of of alternatives. And he said, well, the difference was that these that these guys were really good at understanding uh, other groups of people. And a point that he brought up, which was great, which was um, the reality is that a lot of these guys came out of the mailroom. In other words, they were working class guys who got into the industry at the very bottom and worked their way up. So as they moved up, they took with them that curiosity, that understanding, that perspective that they got from growing up in a different world than they may be in now. So, you know, th- there's that kind of points to who we need to be recruiting in and how we need to be training people that we're we're training people to be more like us rather than sort of ensuring that our cultures are more like them.
3: Yeah. Yeah. I think I think Go on Andrew. I think in I I was going to reference the the road to somewhere here. Yeah. Because um, yeah. you know, one one of the one of the inspirations behind us first of our studies, uh, Gut Instinct, was about, uh, was a book by David Goodhart called The Road to Somewhere. Um, If you haven't read it, I I, I strongly recommend reading it. It's a great book. But essentially, one of the the things to think about, uh, you know, the yesteryear is also the context in which society has evolved as well. So essentially what David Goodhart argued, through, through the use of data Is that essentially you know there's always there's there's that society is kind of split into two between the anywheres who are kind of a a global elites they have you know many of the values that we've talked about versus the somewheres who are the much kind of larger proportion of the population who value tradition and security and things like that and essentially what he's argued or he argued in his book Um, was that the somewheres and anywheres have always kind of existed, but they've always been much closer together in society, um, which obviously helps with things like perspective taking. Um, But essentially what he argues is that over the sort of the last 20 years, the anywheres and somewheres have diverged uh, quite significantly, um, where uh, to the point where things like Brexit and the election of, of Trump was actually a a pushback from the somewheres to the dominant anywheres that have kind of, you know, controlled the kind of, you know, political and socioeconomic uh, socioeconomic agenda uh, for so long. So I think, you know, looking back at, you know, 20, 30 years ago in the advertising industry, fundamentally, we're looking at a different societal composition more broadly. And I don't think it's necessarily, of course, we need more diverse and more uh, you know, more diverse people in the industry, and to be more reflective of, of society as a whole. But I don't think it's quite as simple as you know someone worked in the in the mailroom and worked their way up. And we need more instances like that. I think there's something a lot more complicated, more complicated going on within the context of society itself.
1: We can hope there's going to be some restructuring of the way our society works to make it more fair and equitable, and we can push for that. But where we are right now, we have to develop some skills to deal with these biases now. And so people might have worked their way up from the mail room. That isn't going to happen these days um, in any significant numbers. So how do we codify the things that those people that work their way up from the mail room in our businesses so that everyone, no matter what their background, can apply the same perspectives?
0: How can people get their hands on you know, your white papers, the empathy delusion, the aspiration window, uh, gut instinct? Are they are they are there links that you can give to us or are there places you can yeah. you can share right now where people can go to download
3: them? Yeah, so if you you can download them uh, from our website which is uh, www.burst-your-bubble.com. Um uh, and there's a little bit of an overview of, uh, of of some of the work that we published and the links to the white papers
0: on there. Brilliant, brilliant. Uh, listen, thank you, guys. It, it was uh, it was great having you both. It's Ian Murray, co-founder of Burst Your Bubble. Uh, he's also co-founder of House 51 in London. And Andrew Tenzer, co-founder of Burst Your Bubble. He's a regular columnist uh, for uh, Marketing Week. Uh, do check these guys out on LinkedIn. You can connect with them or you can connect with them. Uh, on our website, we'll have links to both uh, Burst Your Bubble and to their LinkedIn profiles. Thanks, guys. Really, really enjoyed this conversation and a big admirer of what you guys are doing.
1: Great. Thanks for having us, Fergus. Really enjoyed Thanks for having us. Yeah,
0: And we'll see everyone on the next episode.